So now we're in the book of James, and we made it all the way up to chapter 2. And as I said last time, James is a really good companion study since we just finished Galatians. And Paul, since he's talking to Gentiles, heavily emphasizes grace and salvation by faith. His franchise is to Gentiles who don't know nothing about this God. And what he's hammering them with is salvation by faith alone and grace. James is writing to Hebrews. And he starts off his letter by saying to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So he's writing to people who have grown up with Torah. And what he's emphasizing is how do you live it? How do you walk it out? And there's going to be some tension, if you will, between Paul going throughout the same physical territory, talking to Gentiles and pushing grace really hard, and Messianic Hebrews who are going to hear Paul's message and going to sort of say, well, gee, what does that do to the Torah? And so James, I'm suggesting to you, is emphasizing Torah, which emphasizes what do you actually do. Now, when we were in Galatians, one of the things we talked about is the Torah is not designed for salvation. That's not its purpose. And so if you come to God expecting to be able to follow the Torah and earn salvation, you have a serious theological error because the Torah is not designed to do that. The Torah tells you how to live after you've been saved. So when Paul is hammering on the Galatians, what he's responding to is the circumcision party from Jerusalem who has come up and is upsetting them by saying, yeah, 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 we know what this guy Paul said, but you need to understand in order to be saved, you've got to have circumcision. And Paul said, no, no, no. Circumcision is something entirely different, has nothing to do with salvation. And once you are saved, you can do whatever you want with your foreskin. But if you're taking a little off the top with the intention that that is going to be the thing that gets you saved, you don't understand what you're doing. So having said that, now let's come into James chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Yeshua Messiah, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Notice two things here, judges and evil thoughts. Now. Everybody makes judgments. That's what we're designed to do. So you walk down the street and you look at somebody and you make instant judgments and you may learn later that those judgments are right, wrong, or indifferent, but everybody makes judgments all the time. It's the evil intent that he's talking about here. So what he's saying is, if 
you automatically elevate a rich man and depress a poor man. What you are doing is you are doing that for reasons that are not godly. So you are doing something to the effect of saying, we want this guy in our congregation because he's going to be able to tithe and he's going to be able to join the building fund and there's just going to be all sorts of benefit we're going to have from this rich guy. So you are judging with evil intent. You can't let it affect your actions as regards your relationship to him in Messiah. Verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? One of the things that we said last time is being a beggar is a perfectly honest profession. Not necessarily a desirable one, but there's no shame in being a beggar. As Tevye said, there's no great honor either. But God's economy needs poor people. Because without poor people, there's nobody for the rich to give to. So poor people are important to God's economy. What James is not saying here is every poor person is virtuous and every rich person is a scoundrel. He's saying, all right, folks, look, you're making a spot judgment based on this guy's rich and that guy's poor. So we're going to put the rich guy here and we're going to put the poor guy here. Well, I can make a spot judgment also. The poor guy is spiritual. The rich guy is a greedy so-and-so that's going to drag me into court. I'm making the same spot judgment you are, but I'm making it from the opposite perspective. What James, I think, is saying here is neither one of those extremes is probably correct. You've got people who are poor because they richly deserve to be poor because they're dishonest or whatever. Lots of people like that. They are not especially virtuous. You have other people who are just poor and they're virtuous. They, I mean, they're perfectly fine human beings. The same with the rich. You've got people who are rich because they're scoundrels and you have people who are rich because they're genuinely talented and good at what they do. So don't judge either way. Don't presume that the rich are going to help you and the poor are a drag. Similarly, don't presume that the rich is automatically assumed to be some kind of a scoundrel. Well, that's nonsense. And similarly, the poor are not automatically virtuous. But what he's talking about here is judging superficially instead of getting to know them. Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is held accountable for all of it. For he who says do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This, I will gently suggest, the Sunday church drives whole convoys of trucks through. And it doesn't mean what they think it means. First off, there's only one law. Now, the law of liberty is not 
different from the Torah or from the royal law, which he mentions in the first sentence. Remember the royal law up in the first, which says, love your neighbor as yourself. So it's all Torah. Back when I used to argue with Christians, one of the things they would say is, no, Christ gave us new laws. And Christ's laws are different, completely different subjects. So yes, this is a different law. See, it says the law of liberty. It's not talking about that old Torah, which is bondage. That's the first thing. The problem is everything in here is from Torah. Everything. And what it's saying is, thing one, you can spend your entire life driving the speed limit, never violating a traffic law, and then you can turn around and you can knock over a liquor store and you have violated the law and the fact that you have never sped in your life will cut you no slack as they try you for knocking over a liquor store. So the first thing he's saying is the fact that you keep every law except one is not going to protect you when you come to trial for the one that you did violate. What the Sunday church says is you don't want to mess with that old law because Christ has nailed that to the cross and what that is is your get out of hell free card. And none of these laws apply to you. I'm suggesting that's wrong. Now the second thing is this whole thing is in the context of how do you treat your neighbor. He then uses adultery and murder as examples, but the context is how do you treat your neighbor. And what he's saying is, if you show partiality, you are committing sin under the Torah. Because the Torah says not to show partiality, at least not on that basis. So then it says, speak and act as those who are judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. So we're coming back now, and he said, you have a rich man that's come into your congregation and a poor man. You immediately judge them with evil intent. You seat the rich man in a fine place, and you put the poor man down at your feet. So you have judged, and you have judged without mercy. You have judged wrongly. And the fact that you've never murdered or you've never committed adultery doesn't alter the fact that you have improperly judged these two men. Furthermore, you have judged them without mercy. You've simply made a judgment and shuffled them into two seats. And what he's saying is, by the same measure that you measure, it will be measured back to you. So if you judge someone without mercy, when it comes time for God to judge you, you will get just exactly the same amount of slack as you extended to somebody else. That's what's being said here. It is not saying that the law is done away with or the Torah has been replaced by the law of liberty. It is simply saying, by the standards that you use when you judge, it will be measured back to you. So best, you go back and look at the Torah and you find out what the basis for judgment ought to be. And it isn't external appearances and it isn't how much money the guy's got. So now we're down to verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So the first thing he's saying is, you assert that you have faith. How is anybody going to know that other than you assert it? If your faith doesn't inform your actions, as far as anybody is concerned, you are no different from an infidel. Verse 19, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So the sort of rhetorical thing that he's arguing against is someone who says, I have faith in God. I believe in God. Anybody ever heard somebody say, I believe in God? And what James is saying, big whoop, so does Satan. So the fact that you believe in God says absolutely nothing about your spiritual condition. Says absolutely nothing about your relationship to God. Because, as he says, even the demons believe in God and they shudder. Verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So now he is going to give you an example that shows the person who believes that he can have pure faith that does not result in action. What James is saying is faith that doesn't result in action is worthless. It's dead. You can say you believe in God all you want, but if it doesn't translate into your actions, it means nothing any more than the demons who believe in God. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to give you an example. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. All right, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness in Genesis chapter 15. That's the business with the smoking pot and the flaming torch and all that kind of, you know, the sacrifice that are cut in half and so forth. This is where Paul starts his argument in Galatians. So in Galatians, Paul starts right there. And he says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Then Paul goes into a riff that the Torah, which is given 400 years after the promise, cannot annul or amend the promise that was given to Abraham by God when he first believed. That's sort of the argument in Galatians. Everybody gets saved the same way. Abraham got saved by faith. Paul got saved by faith. David got saved by faith. You get saved by faith. Everybody gets saved the same way. And the Torah can't change that because your salvation is based on a promise. And the promise was given to Abraham. The purpose of the Torah is not salvation. That's not what it's designed to do. It is a behavior and teaching manual for how the saved shall live. So that's sort of Paul's argument. What James does is goes to the other end of that sequence of Abraham's life when Abraham is asked by God to offer up Isaac. And what he's saying is when Abraham offered up Isaac in obedience to God, it's at that point that God makes firm the promise that he had uttered back in Genesis 15. So the promise gets uttered in Genesis 15. It gets sealed in Genesis 22 at the Akedah. Paul is emphasizing the beginning of that process 
James is emphasizing the end of that same process. So now let's go to Genesis chapter 22. Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and behold a ram in the thicket and so forth. And that becomes Jehovah Yarrah on the mount the Lord will provide. And then I'll skip down to verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of its enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So does that mean that the promise that was made back in Genesis 15 was not binding? How many of you were here for the discussion we were having on Shabbat about whether God knows everything? This is one of the places that indicates he doesn't. Because what he does is he sets up Abraham and he doesn't know what Abraham is going to do until Abraham does it. And what he says is, now I know. Now I know. I'm suggesting to you that the spiritual maturation of Abraham and the final realization of the promises is worked out starting at the beginning. And God says at the beginning, all right, this is what I want to do for you. And at the end, God says, I'm going to do it. And James here is saying the promises of God are sealed by Abraham's obedience. Paul is saying that Abraham's initial belief are what saved him. I don't see a difference between those two statements. So what happens is Abraham trusts God. God says, you're in my kingdom. Now we have a process where we walk. And at the end of that process, I'm going to test you. And in fact, he gets tested a number of times. And some of the tests he does pretty well, and some of the tests he didn't do so good. His business with Ishmael and so forth was, you know, perhaps not not such a good result. But at the end of the day, God finally says, Here, here's your you know, final exam graduation time. And he passes that one. And the whole thing is then sealed. By the end of Abraham's life, God knows Abraham so well that I don't think there's any doubt in God's mind how the test is going to turn out. But Abraham still has to do it. And so what James is talking about, as opposed to Paul, is Paul is emphasizing the front end of the process where you make your choice. James is emphasizing the back end of the process, which we would call sanctification, or the process of demonstrating by your works that you really are in. If the only contact you've had with God was to use the modern term, the sinner's prayer, and it never touches the rest of your life, what James is saying is, sorry, what you've got's dead. It isn't alive. Because a faith that's alive should express itself in action.
And if it's not expressing itself in action, then it's dead. And furthermore, if you console yourself by saying, 20 years ago I said the sinner's prayer, what you're doing is you're deceiving yourself. And that's the point of this exercise. He's talking to people who say, 20 years ago I said whatever the equivalent of the sinner's prayer was in the first century, I'm saved. And James is saying, it isn't showing up through your life. So you really ought to come back and do a reality check because your life doesn't show any evidence of salvation. So 23, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. So the idea there is the scripture that is fulfilled was uttered seven chapters back in Genesis 15. It has only come to fruition in Genesis 22. So that's what fulfilled means. 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Whereas the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. What he's saying is the spirit animates the body, and if you don't have any spirit, the body is just a lump of clay. Similarly, faith is the body, works are the animation of the body by analogy. If works don't show through, then it's like a body that is without a spirit. Please consider becoming a sponsor. You can sponsor us for as little as a dollar a month. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.